Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. This is episode 41, part four of the Hella series. I hope everyone had a great Christmas and New Year. I hope you received everything you asked for, even if all you asked for was just time with the family, which at this stage in the game for me, family time is what I personally enjoy the most. For New Year's, the wife and I went down to San Diego. We spent the a day in the evening with our friends. We stopped at a brewery first called Duckfoot Brewery in Miramar. It's actually right by the uh, Marine Corps Air Station, Miramar. Brewery's fantastic. The beers are amazing. So if you guys are in the SoCal region, especially even San Diego, and you haven't tried Duckfoot Brewing, do yourself a favor. Give it a shot. It's, it's really good. I think you'll like it. On the last episode... It was a Christmas special on the Christmas truce of 1914. Twas the season and when in season, it's good to talk about something related to Christmas. And I hope you all enjoyed it. But on this episode, we're getting back into the dirty trenches. I'm going back to Gallipoli for the months of July and August in 1915. And let me tell you, it's really going to come alive if it already hasn't done so. There's going to be a major shift in the plan of attack. But before I do, let me tell you what I'm drinking. After the episode 39 drink debacle, Mr. Fumblehands who spilled his drink, I felt the need to redeem myself. So I decided to make another tiki drink just so I know the tiki gods don't have a personal vengeance towards me. This time I made a Singapore Sling, a classic among the most classic tiki cocktails, but also comes with a bit of controversy, which mostly revolves around the ingredients themselves and what to call it. And when I put it like that, it sounds like there actually isn't a drink, but I assure you this is a real drink. In fact, any serious tiki connoisseur should know this. Trader Vic had a few versions in his bartender's guide from 1947, but most mixologists and bartenders would agree that the first person who created the slinger should be credited to a man named Nyam Tang Boon. Boon was a Chinese bartender who first moved to Vietnam where he trained. He then moved to Singapore where he first worked at the Adelphi Hotel and then ended up at the Singapore's finest hotel, Raffles. It was the finest among finest of hotels in the land. It's actually a really fancy hotel, at least to my standards. I probably am never going to stay there because the average price per night is something around $700. In some months, it can go up to 1000 per night. Anyways, Boone began working at Raffles sometime at the beginning of the 20th century. He died in 1915 while the Gallipoli campaign was going on. He invented the Singapore sling while working at Raffles. Unfortunately, nobody knows the first recipe that was created and many versions have come about since, but the name still lives on and the version I'm drinking comes from the book Smuggler's Cove and the recipe is this. Two ounce seltzer, I'm using Topo Chico, I love that stuff. Three quarters ounce fresh lemon juice, quarter ounce Demerara syrup, half ounce cherry herring liqueur, a quarter ounce Benedictine, 
one and a half ounce London dry gin, and I'm using Beef Eater because I like that. One dash of Angostura bitters and one dash of orange bitters. Now the hearing, or, or sorry, the cherry hearing liqueur. If you can't find it, I've I've heard you can use Luxardo uh, cherry liqueur. You probably do the same thing. So, and it's probably around the same price point. So I'm gonna garnish with a lemon wedge. And let's see how the Singapore slings its way down to my belly. Oh, yeah. You know what? That mm, That's good. <laughs> I didn't spill it. That's even better. No, that's really good. I thought it was going to be really sweet. It's not. It's, um, I mean, yeah, you're not drinking a bourbon or a whiskey, but... It's not too sweet. This would be nice on a beach if you're in Tahiti, Hawaii, the Bahamas. This is definitely would be a a nice in the sun on the beach drink. Yep, I can tell that's going to go down real nice. Okay. All right. Let me go over what happened on the previous episode. Actually, two episodes ago. The situation was grim for the Allies up through the Third Battle of Krithia. They couldn't just keep throwing wave after wave of troops to gain zero ground. In fact, the only thing gained so far was more casualties. Something had to change quick. They desperately needed a new plan of attack, and they did exactly that. They attacked in a new fashion, and it worked. For the first time, they were able to gain ground and hold it. They did this by narrowing down the attack points and concentrating all available heavy guns and artillery to pulverize the Turkish lines before the men went over. In some cases, the artillery was so intense, I mean, it literally obliterated them. I mean, it, it darn near almost vaporized the front line. For the first time in this campaign, the French were able to complete their objective by taking over the front lines they faced and holding it. A lot of lives, lives were lost in the process, but overall, they completed their objective. This was a huge achievement for the Pailus at Gallipoli. Because up to this point, the British were getting a little fed up with the French not being able to push forward and hold. When the French broke down, the British attacking forces broke down for the most part which is another problem on its own. But one big thorn in the Pailu side was still causing havoc. It was the harassing artillery fire coming from the Turkish batteries placed on the Asiatic side of Gallipoli. The harassing fire was so bad, it took out General Henry Jurov from the game. He had been badly wounded from a shell fired from the Turkish 5th Artillery Battery on the 30th of June. He was urgently evacuated, but would end up losing an arm. His replacement would be a 73-year-old general named Maurice Ballou, who was already at Gallipoli commanding the French 2nd Division, so he was well up to speed on the Dardanelles situation and could easily take Giraud's place. Even after losing his right arm, General Giraud would go on to take command of the French 4th Army on the Western Front until the end of the war. I mean, come on. That's a real trooper right there. I think because Girard was still relatively young when he lost his arm, this would be the reason he sprung back into service so quickly. 
He was 48 years old in 1915. I mean, that's really not that old. As a general, he's still in his prime, especially for this time period when generals are practically, in some cases, wheeled in. Maurice Ballou was 73 years old, for Christ's sake. I mean, come on. That's kind of ridiculous. The man should have been playing backgammon, cribbage, or something. T taking naps during the day. I just think of most 73-year-olds, or heck, I'll just say 70-year-olds today. But let's be honest, most are not fit to take control of an army. The stress alone is a killer. You know, but again, times were very different just over a century ago. But again, times were very different over a century ago. Maurice Bellou will end up dying in a plane crash in 1921 near Bar-le-Doux, France. Bar-le-Doux is a small commune just south of Verdun. So the big player at Gallipoli was now the artillery. The Allies needed more shells to bombard these concentrated areas, as well as holding off Turkish counterattacks. And now we move in to the beginning of July for the Dardanelles campaign. Lehman von Sanders and the Turkish commanders were alarmed by this new tactic, the style of bite and hold, obviously because it seemed to be working. Turkish commanders became infuriated and showed no sensitivity even under dire stress. One addressed his officers with the following. Commanders who surrender these trenches from whatever side the attack may come before the last man is killed will be punished in the same way as if they had run away. And that all officers will be held responsible if they do not shoot their revolvers, any and all who try to escape from the trenches. This order was issued by Colonel Rifat of the Turkish 5th Army. The Turks were determined to keep up their defense. The Scots from the British 52nd Division were next in line for a new attack, which was to be launched on the 12th of July. The goal was, was for them to take the Akibaba Nola sector, while the French took the remaining western trenches at Carivas Dare, with the support of all available British and French artillery. This would be done in two waves. The first would be the 155th Brigade along with the French going over the top at 0735 hours. And the second wave from the British from the 157th Brigade would go over at 1650 hours. The French and the British 155th Brigade climbed over the top. Immediately, the Brits took on a shower of lead coming from the Turkish rifles and machine guns. The French made it to the second trench line, which seemed to have been abandoned by the Turks. But right below, at the base of the ravine, just past the line, there were several hundred enemies coming at them. The Pailus took aim and rapidly fired their rifles. They were thrown into a sustained counterattack from the Turks, interlocked. The two duped it out, just as you can imagine. Both sides took many casualties. The 155th didn't have it any better. After they were greeted with a hailstorm of bullets, the high explosive artillery shells began exploding in every direction. Dust and dirt was thrown into the air, making it hard for the men to see where they were going. Miraculously, they made it to the first trench line, and before they knew it, they were in the third line, which they too found what appeared to be abandoned and not dug very well. 
Each British soldier carried with them two empty sandbags. Once they hit the third line, they were ordered to fill the bags and put them on the parapets. The Turks started the trench, but they wanted to reinforce it. The men frantically got out their entrenching tools and began the painstaking work of filling these bags. But the area they were on wasn't like the sand on the beach. The soil was extremely packed in, dry, almost rock-like, or as one described it, flint-like. This wasn't going to be no easy task. But they had no choice. They desperately hacked with their shovels because they were still taking heavy fire from the flanking position nearby. But oddly enough, there seemed to be little to no presence of enemy soldiers directly to their front. After about 30 minutes of desperately trying to fill the sandbags and taking heavy casualties, the men were more ordered over the trench, run towards the direction of fire. You know, basically, get out of the trench and run towards the bullets. The men leapt over and ran as fast as they could over the treacherous ground that was littered with shell craters. Naturally, the men see the craters as cover. So many of them jumped into these the, the closest one as possible, a wall of lead is coming at them. They really don't know what lays ahead. They see a crater that offers protection. Of course they were going to jump in. Many men were dropped during this hasty maneuver to push towards the enemy fire. Those that didn't find a crater or those that refused to get in one and push forward were more than likely sent to the warrior's heaven. And shortly after the men jumped for cover, all they could hear was officers screaming from their left and right, retire, 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 pull back. Men recall that they didn't even chance it by running in the open, so they low crawled back to the Turkish second line. I don't know how many of you have ever low crawled for long distances before. I'm sure some of you have, and those who have can tell you it's no easy task with rifle and gear. But this is what they had to do to increase their chances of surviving the day. So low crawl is what they did. When I got to my first unit, hazing was still allowed during this time. I did a lot of low crawling. Some of the platoons made the lower ranking merry guys low crawl to their cars as their wives would pick them up. <laughs> I shouldn't even be laughing because some of it was really messed up, but... I just can't help but laugh at some of the shenanigans we had to go through. The the koalifying, the Batman, the Jojo the Duck, Halo, and so many other ways to make a private hate his life. But it's what we had to, to go through, and we did it. And there is that line that you can easily cross where hazing turns into something just sick. But the physical hazing, like the ones I described, just made us stronger. And in a weird way, I'm thankful I went through it. <laughs> Anyways, that's completely off topic. Around the time when the men were recovering from low crawling to safety, the second wave of the 157th Brigade was launched at 1650 hours. And the result was almost identical. They made it to the third line, which appeared abandoned. In the end, they fell back to consolidate with the 155th. In Peter Hart's book, Gallipoli, he talks about a lieutenant having a discussion with Hunter Weston shortly after the second wave was launched. I, f I found it interesting because even with the smallest conversation, you, you get the picture 
how many of the higher-ups felt about the war almost a year after it had started. The officer described the encounter, saying the following. Most of the day, I had been watching the battlefield from Observation Hill, then at 5 p.m. went to tea in the mess where I was alone. General Hunter Weston entered a few minutes later and sitting opposite me said, What an extraordinary thing war is. The progress of the day had greatly satisfied him. I could see he was in great glee. Yes, I said, but I wish to goodness it was all over. My dear sir, he replied, we'll have years of it yet. I asked if he thought there was any possibility of it ending this year. Absolutely none. Lieutenant George Davidson, 89th Field Ambulance, RAMC. End quote. It really shows generals had a clear picture the length this war could go. Unlike the political opinion who said it would be over by Christmas, 1914. And the generals should be the ones to know because they're leading this war on several fronts. I definitely would not call war an extraordinary thing, though. I think it's far from being extraordinary, especially the First World War. It's a terrible thing for a general to say while his men are crawling on their stomachs just to stay alive for the day. The French and British brigades that now secured this new front line didn't feel very secure at all. In fact, they feared Turkish counterattacks because when these attacks were launched, it's usually when the you-know-what hits the fan and there's not enough men to hold the ground. And because of this fear, the 1st Naval Brigade of the R&D will be pulled up to help defend the line. In fact, this Naval Brigade was immediately thrown into another attack along with the French the next day, the 13th of July. But... As history has shown with previous disastrous attacks, it either comes from lack of men or lack of communication. Both or combined played a big part with plans crumbling away, leading to a catastrophic number of casualties. And lack of communication reemerges itself onto the stage to play the same role. They had good artillery support, but some of the battalions were jumping over almost 20 minutes past their scheduled time after the artillery had lifted. This meant the Turks had more, more time to emplace themselves and to get ready for an oncoming attack. And that's exactly what happened. The men moved up from the old British front line and the Turkish gunners opened up and sawed right through them. Men were gruesomely ripped apart by the machine guns. And those that made it to the Turkish front line found themselves in another hell. The newly captured trench system was littered with corpses, blackened from the sun, stinking from rot and decomposition. They're surrounded by the constant bullets being fired at them, the death and carnage that littered the trenches and the surrounding area, the sun beating down on them. This is their own little hell on earth. And now... Dehydration is starting to set in. Their throats are coated with dirt and dust from the air they breathe in so heavily. The men began to crave water more than anything as their water bottles ran dry and the temperature seemed to get even hotter. Another very uncomfortable problem the men were having is prickly heat. Prickly heat is caused by clogging sweat ducts or sweat glands, 
when the body is filthy and you're exerting yourself physically, this can happen. And it's very uncomfortable. This can often lead to the skin forming a rash with red bumps. Those that have had it can tell you how much it sucks. It feels like there's constant needles pricking at your body all over. The only way I know to immediately relieve prickly heat is by bathing. One summer we were doing a platoon X tabs in the swamps of Georgia. Almost everyone had it. So we found a little pond or something that resembled a pond. We busted out our soap bars and we washed ourselves. This was the solution for us at this time. Unfortunately, this would not be the solution for those soldiers who probably had to endure this for a few days. Sometimes it can be the little things like prickly heat that'll make your life hell. Not only do they have the little things like thirst and rashes, they also had a man-made hell on earth surrounding them. You know, the thirst was so bad, the men at the very forward line had to start digging in the earth until they hit moisture. Once they did, they put their mouths on the ground and desperately began to suck in anything that they could. Finally, rations arrived the next day for most of the R&D. Two water rations for each man. Two ounce tobacco tins were replaced with rations of water. You know, being hungry, tired, beat to shit. That's one thing, but thirst, that can kill you fast. As the Turks began their counterattacks during the early morning hours, the British artillery gun teams took their positions. It was their job to protect the frontline troops as best they could. And to give you an idea of how much artillery fire we're talking about, which they seem to be doing much better on munition inventory since the battles of Krithia, just one gun team, and there were many, but one gun team started firing at 0630 hours and didn't stop firing until 2100 hours, 9 p.m. Think about that. Think about each man constantly moving in sync to keep the machine firing. Yeah, the gun, after so many rounds, is red hot, and the firing is just constant. So who goes down first? The gun team under the beating sun or the gun itself? Fortunately, most of the guns lasted the whole duration, but some did break down. Yes, they're not under the same pressure and stress as the men in the trenches, but give credit where credit is due. These boys were put through a physical ringer and de deserved to feel accomplished by the end of the day or night, especially coming from the fact that they did repel the counterattacks. And to give you another perspective of how much artillery was used during the Great War, at Gallipoli during this time, you know, we're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands of rounds per day, maybe somewhere around there. Soon, come 1916, Firing a million rounds in one single day will become common. All in all, after these couple days of fighting, gains were made and lines were secured. Losses were high on both sides, but the Turks by far had more. They took an estimated 9,800 casualties compared to the 3,100 British and 840 French. 
That's overestimated 13,500 casualties just in a couple days' time. Uh, here's another thing. Even though the Allies took less casualties, this didn't necessarily put them in a better position, and that's because the Turks had much more reserves to replenish their lines. Over the next few days that followed, the Turks brought up four divisions from the 2nd Army to relieve their lines. The Allies were desperate for any sort of relief they could get. Shortly after the battles on the 12th and 13th of July, Hunter Weston was sent home after suffering from sunstroke. He was temporarily relieved by General William Douglas. Hunter Weston and other generals made careless decisions from the start of this campaign, but historians lay the majority of the blame for failures on Sir Ian Hamilton's shoulders. And Ian Hamilton's focus is starting to turn towards Anzac and Suva Bay. Suva Bay is just north of Gaba Tepe and Anzac Cove. I'll have a picture of it on my Instagram and Facebook page when this episode releases. From the beginning of this campaign, General William Birdwood, commander of the Anzac Corps, knew that a landing at this bay would eventually be needed. Knowing this, he gave strict orders that no attacks of any kind shall be made in that direction. His intentions were to have the Turks believe they completely ignored this area so they wouldn't spend any time placing defensive positions there. Now, back in June when the Dardanelles Committee met, they would assign the 10th, 11th, 13th, as well as the 53rd and 54th Divisions to Sir Ian Hamilton. Hamilton, with the encouragement from Birdwood, would launch a new plan of attack at Suvla Bay in hopes they would march right into Khalid Bar then get the enemy facing Hellas from the rear. Again, Birdwood already had it in his mind from the start of this campaign that he would eventually be landing troops here. He presented the first plan of attack to Hamilton back in May. The plan was to break out of the trenches at Anzac during an evening attack. They would overrun the Turks at Hill Q and Chinook Bear. Then, the next day, sweep down on Battleship Hill and Baby 700 from the rear. And what immediately comes to mind is if it was this straightforward, why haven't they done this already? Well, the simple answer to that is because they haven't been able to break through. Did they think this was going to be a new enemy? Bird would believe that in order to achieve this, he would need help from the 29th Indian Brigade, along with the British Division, who would assist with overall taking of Khalid Bar which in turn would also turn any focus away from Suvla, giving them an opportunity for a safe landing. Once again, you have an attack plan with different objectives, yet each objective is dependent on the other's success. If they fail at Hellas, this would throw a wrench in the Anzac plan of attack, and if the Anzac plan of attack breaks down, the landing could possibly break down. I'm not saying the Suvla landing wasn't a good plan, just not the way they had it laid out at the beginning. They'll need to make some, some changes. One cool advancement of, or change that's been made since the landings in April is the new armored motor X-Lighters. Instead of those strung along rowboats they used, which became death traps, they now have motorized armored transports that can carry up to 500 troops. And advancements in warfare is always needed, especially for the Great War. Since the turn of the century, and with the Industrial Revolution still rolling, weapons, vehicles, bombs 
will continue to pour in with new ways to better fight the enemy. But with anything new, things aren't always perfect. Like everything, there's flaws. For this new motorized landing craft, that will be the size. These are big carriers. They weigh much more than the boats previously used. You would have to take that into account when landing into a bay as the water could be much more shallow. The Navy actually advised Hamilton on this, but because they didn't want to draw any attention, any recommendations for surveying the landing site beforehand was shot down. Hamilton took all the divisions that would participate in this new landing and formed the new 9th Corps. But who would lead this new 9th Corps into a new operation, which could be the pivoting point to a new breakthrough at Gallipoli? And of course, this wouldn't be a simple decision. With everything that involved officers making decisions comes drama. Hamilton and Kitchener began bickering back and forth at each other like two deranged donkeys. I want this person. You can't have this person, but you can have him or him. I don't want him or him. I want him. At one point, Hamilton asked for a general, Sir Henry Rawlinson, who was gaining attention on the Western Front, which seems completely absurd to me because why would you take anything away from the Western Front? If it was up to Hamilton... I'm sure he would pull as many as possible away from that front as he could, even though that's where the heart of the war lies. At the end of all the bickering, Hamilton got a 61-year-old lieutenant named General Frederick Stopford, who was more of a desk commander than a field commander. I mean, can you pour any more soup over this already submerged sandwich? Not only are they lacking experience at the highest level for this new core? To top it off, which I didn't mention earlier, all these new divisions, the majority of them are filled with inexperienced troops. These are brand new, fresh recruits with minimal training. They'd been rushed through just to get them sent over. The plan for the Anzac Corps was this. At 1730 hours, troops would be launched into a full-scale attack aimed at Lone Pine. Again, the Anzac Corps up to this point had not been able to break through the Turkish lines. Why all of a sudden did they think they were going to overrun them now? Or were the Anzac soldiers on the frontal assault purely used as bait? Hoping the Turks would be distracted by the battle at Lone Pine, the left flank would hook around through the North Beach. The assaulting forces would push all the way to Chinook Bear and Hill 971, while covering forces would take down Turkish outposts that had been commanding the valleys all the way down to Damakjilik Bear. Now to the landing. The plans for the Suvla landing had several issues before the horses got out the gate. A. The new divisions are filled with untrained men, as I said. B. Not only is there inexperience at the troop level, they now have a commander whose only experience is behind a desk. C. There's no plan for artillery support. And D. They have no idea how the new armored X-Lighters would react with the bay. These issues are important. The whole thing so far is screaming disaster. Nothing stands out that sounds overall like a great idea. I'm not saying the commanders are trying to sabotage this campaign. But damn, 
Are they trying to fail? You can see how they're trying to thin out the Western Front by taking experienced troops and moving them to a front that, in my opinion, shouldn't have existed. Then Hamilton starts aiming for the commanders to be moved over. And I feel shitty for saying it's good that the majority of these requests got denied. But I mean, look, the Western Front is a poop show in its own. Why would anybody approve troops to be moved from there over to Gallipoli? I still feel Gallipoli and the aim for Constantinople was completely unnecessary for the war. Being they weren't ready to leave, of course, they did need more troops. So naturally, they would have to be st stuck with getting fresh recruits. There's no other option, really. And how can they really expect to beat the Turks with inexperienced troops? I know the Anzacs are tough fighters, and these fresh troops by now know exactly what's going on. So I'm sure they're mentally preparing themselves, at least somewhat. As this unfolds, we'll see if being a tough fighter can compensate for a horrible plan of attack. The initial plans were given to Stopford and his Chief of Staff, Brigadier General Hamilton Reed, who actually had experience. He was one of the very few that Hamilton was able to pull away from the Western Front. Reed was a military man and a former artillery officer. He served in the Second Boer War in 1899, where he was wounded and received the Victoria Cross. The man has experience under his belt. Reed suspected there was defensive positions along the slopes of Chocolate Hill and W Hills inside of Suvla Bay. He voiced his disapproval to move through this area without artillery support. He believed without this, it would be impossible to move the men through. He stressed these concerns to Stopford and the other higher-ups. And because of this, some changes were made to the plans. They would land less soldiers inside Suvla Bay, which now they believe would take them less time to march around the boundary of the Salt Lake. Maybe I didn't mention that. There's a Salt Lake just to the right as you walk into Suvla Bay. The Navy was already concerned about moving the new armored carriers into the bay, fearing it would bottom out too soon because the craft itself was heavy, even with, without troops. And that still stands. And then, the Salt Lake was dry from the, from the harsh summer. Why did they need to walk around it? One good thing came from Reed's concerns, and that was Chocolate and W Hills. They were now considered a problem, and they would need artillery support. But these changes just caused more huffs and puffs with the rest of the higher-ups in the Ninth Corps. General Frederick Hammersley, commander of the 11th Division, had fears this would work. It now appeared that Stopford's plan for the 10th and 11th Division was that of no urgency. The 10th would no longer be used to assist the attacks coming from Anzac, and the 11th Division's original plan to quickly attack Karich Tepe and Teke Tepe had been removed. Hammersley believed that this was foolish and thought this new plan was irresponsible to their overall objective for running over the Turks. Overall, the whole command and control process of the 9th Corps was becoming a disaster, and this isn't what the troops needed before going into battle. And Ian Hamilton should be held accountable for this breakdown as well. In fact, he probably should should bear most of the blame because he's the overall commander at Gallipoli. 
Stopford claimed he never even had a one-minute face-to-face meeting with Hamilton before the Suvla landings. Don't you think that would have been a crucial thing for Hamilton to do? To sit down and chat with his new commanding general of this new Ninth Corps who would be leading a new attack that could possibly make or break this whole campaign. This whole plan and the breakdown of leadership was insane. But Hamilton really believed this was the way. There was one person who wasn't fooled by thinking the British wouldn't eventually land at Suvla. And that person was Mustafa Kamal. Before August, he stressed his concerns about a possible attack north of Anzac. He later said the following. I believe that the new attempts would be made by an extension of the Anzac front to the north in pursuit of his aim of dominating the Sari Bear range. These ideas and opinions I passed on to the regimental commanders of the 19th Division and also my staff. Sometimes even on quiet nights when there was no action, I used to carry out with my regimental commanders short war games on the map regarding these points. Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kamal, 5th Army, end quote. The, uh, the his he was referring to was Hamilton. Problem for Mustafa was that his superiors didn't share the same concerns. And because of this, they decided not to strengthen the sector right away. Despite some of the fears at the 9th Corps, it would only be defended by an Anaforta detachment of just three battalions under the command of a German officer named Major Wilhelm Wilmer. Wilmer's plans were simple. Some of the men would defend key points along the coastal hills of Lalababa, Hill 10, and Karakolda. And along these hills, his troops managed to dig a system of trenches laid with mines. The troops were to cause as much disruption to the British as possible should they come in contact. The rest of the men would di- were dug in at Chocolate Hill, Green Hill, and W Hills. Vilmer did have reserves in waiting at the Boulair sector if they were needed. In Peter Hart's book, Gallipoli, he summed the situation up perfectly. And I'm going to read it to you. Taken as a whole, the scheme was utterly unrealistic. It demanded feats of endurance from the assaulting columns climbing to Sari Bear which would have made Hannibal think twice. It asked raw troops to perform perform like veterans and sickly veterans to put their illnesses behind them. It required leadership from incompetence. It sought to create diversions by attacks that bitter experience had already shown were bound to fail. And worst of all, it assumed, despite all the evidence so far accumulated, that the Turks fight badly. Nothing sums it up better than that. And looking back at this over 100 years later, disaster is written everywhere. I asked the question, how did nobody, at least somebody with his head on his shoulders, see that this was not going to end well? When the Allied commanders made good decisions, and they sometimes did, just as the bite and hold attacks proved to gain ground, this was a good plan of attack, but then they steer off course. They take steps completely backwards. They turn the situation into crap again. I do agree that the Anzacs did have a potentially good position for flanking the Turks, which could have helped the Brits at Hellas, if they had the proper support and proper plan of attack. 
One big problem is that every operation during this campaign so far, one success was dependent on the other success. The British were dependent on the French to succeed on their flank, and when the French broke down, their attacks broke down. Now the landing at Suvla Bay is dependent on the Anzacs overrunning the Turks in some miracle fashion, which they haven't been able to do up to this point. They also needed another diversion attack to keep as much attention away from Suvla as possible. On the 6th of August, the 88th Brigade from the 29th Division were to attack the Turkish lines north of Krithianola and then push up onto Fir Tree Spur that runs parallel to Goli and Y Beach. The 29th would also be supported by the Manchesters. On the 7th of August, the 125th and the 127th Brigades from the 42nd Division were to attack along the Krithia Spur and then up to Krithianola. The goal was to draw out the Turkish from the center point and eliminate them. This diversion attack kicked off at 1420 hours on the 6th with a British bombardment. Problem was the Turks were expecting an attack. The bombardment seemed to do little damage. The infantry went over the top at 1550 hours and they found out the hard way that the bombardment didn't do much damage. Once the men went over the parapet, the Turks opened up with rifle and machine gun fire, dropping a good majority of the 88th Brigade. The 86th Brigade was ordered to carry out a night attack at 2230 hours, but after much protest from the officers on the ground, the attack was called off. Because the Turks did such a good job repelling off this attack, General Lehman von Sanders gained confidence in his lines at Hellas. He ordered the reserve 4th Division at Seraphim Farm to march towards Anzac on the 7th of August. Even as bad as the 88th fared, the 125th and 127th continued on with their plan. On August 7th, they attacked along Krithia Spur. At 0810 hours, the bombardment kicked off with machine gunners laying in position, ready to squeeze off burst after burst of rounds. This area along Krithia Spur became just a complete death zone until the 13th of August. It would have some of the most fiercest fighting yet, especially around the vineyard sector, which was only about 200 yards long and 100 yards wide. Side note, I believe there's still a wine vineyard in operation around Suvla today. One officer later described some of the fighting, saying, I was far too busy to think of myself or to think of anything. We just went at it without a pause while the Turks were attacking, and in the slack intervals, I put some more fuses into bombs. I cannot imagine how I escaped with only a bruise from a piece of shrapnel. It was miraculous. The attacks were very fierce at times, but only once did the Turks succeed in getting right up to our parapet. Three attempted to climb over, but I shot them with my revolver. All this time, both our bomb throwing and shooting had been very effective, and many Turkish dead were in front of the parapet and in the saps. We had to be on watch all the time, and so it was impossible to get any sleep. Fortunately, we had no fewer than 800 of those bombs, but we got rid of a lot during the greatest weekend I had ever spent. Captain William Forshaw, the 1st of 9th Manchester Regiment, end quote. All in all, this diversion attack at Hellas 
was a failure, costing 3,300 British casualties and the Turks 7,500. Repelling the 125th and 127th again restored confidence in the Turks at Helles. So Lehman then ordered the 8th Division to march towards Anzac. All focus on this campaign was going from Helles to Anzac in August of 1915. Alec Riley was a signaler with the 42nd East Lincolnshire Division. Riley had a first-hand account of the fighting that raged from August 6th until, thir- until the 13th of August. Uh, I want to read a little bit from his diary before I conclude this episode. He's going to mention the term flying pigs. This was the nickname given to the trench mortars because they look short and fat compared to an artillery piece or cannon. And the round fired was fatter than the barrel and it had wings. You can Google flying pig trench mortar and some good pictures will come up with it. Riley on the 6th of August. When we awoke on the morning of Friday, August 6th, our trench was full of Worcesters of the 29th. The greater part of that division was on the far side of the communication trench. The Worcesters moved up to where the Munsters were. Then the East Lincolnshires, wearing red armlets, went up to the firing line. Nothing happened until 2.30 p.m. when our bombardment started. Unfortunately, the Turks were of the same mind and bombarded our lines. Both sides were noisy. The noise increased, the air quivered, and the earth shook with explosions. Shells, mostly shrapnel, were bursting unpleasantly close to us. Up went our flying pigs. We heard the ruffle pops of the mortars and watched the ugly wobbling pigs go up and then drop, slowly feeling the steadying effect of the wings and landing nose down. They ascended about 400 feet. When a pig dropped, there were three or four seconds of suspense. And then we saw a great, dull red horizontal flash, 30 or 40 yards on each side of the burst. Even our own trench rocked and shook with explosions, while earth and debris fell all over us. To the Turks, these things must have been devils from hell. Then the Turks shelled us again. Bits of smoking metal, balls singly or clusters, still in their grease, which smoked in the heat of the explosions, fell in our trench. Rifles and machine guns were hard at work. The communication trench passed through ours and in front of our line. A shallow trench had been made. Some of the 5th Manchesters were in it, waiting to go forward, over the smoking ground. The dressing station was 10 yards from the signal office. The medical officer and his men waited. His case of instruments were open. A wounded man came down and was quickly attended to. And then, the wounded came down in strength, passing us by. Some had very little clothing on. That of others was torn to shreds. The M.O. worked quickly, but however fast he worked, he could not cope with the numbers who crawled or staggered to him. They were muddy and bloody, dirty and torn. Khaki was dark with soaked blood. There were bloody dressings on heads, arms, hands, and legs, and they were struck deaf and dumb by shell shock. Some of them were muttering. Others shook in every limb. The M.O. worked harder. 
but however hard he worked, he could not keep up with the numbers. And that's going to be it for this episode. On the next one, I'm going to jump right back into this with the Anzac breakout attack along with the landings. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. And of course, it's a must that I thank each and every one of you who's supporting the show by listening to it. And if you're listening to it, I hope you're enjoying it. I wanted to give a special shout out to Dav here and his dad, who is 91 years old. Both have a passion for history and are listeners of the podcast. Dav reached out to me saying he introduced his dad to the podcast and they both are enjoying it. So a big thank you for that. And I get several messages from listeners who have nothing but great things to say, and I appreciate every single one. Cheers to all of you and a happy new year. And until the next episode, take care, everyone.